Now, this month marks an anniversary, one worth remembering, but one, I would say, not certainly worth celebrating. It's an anniversary that you may know today as the Jonestown Massacre. Jim Jones was a, was a charismatic leader, and he sought to establish a, a socialist utopia here in the United States called the, the People's Temple. And he began in Indianapolis, but then he moved to San Francisco in the 1970s, you know, the, the left coast, as it's referred to, often being a little more friendly to sort of socialist, utopian ideals. I can speak a little personal experience coming from that left coast, right? But as Jones's influence grew, so did within his movement reports of, of abuse and coercion, fearing investigations and fearing interference, Jones led his followers to Guiana and established a colony in his own name that he named Jonestown. Now the U.S. would eventually send a delegation down to Jonestown to investigate down in, back in 1978, and it was led by a congressman named Leo Ryan. There were news crews from NBC and other journalists and reporters, even some families who had members, as they described, trapped in this cult. Now access was limited, and as they met eventually with members, it seemed that members had been coached as to what to say, but, but even then some were able to slip little pieces of paper with desperate cries for help. When others weren't watching, they were able to mouth even two news reporters and, and crews, help, help me get out. Well, while Congressman Ryan was preparing to leave Jonestown, along with the film crews, they were ambushed by Jones' men, and they were actually slaughtered there on the dirt airstrip. And then shortly thereafter, Jones would, would then take all of his followers, and he would direct them to drink cyanide-infested and laced flavorade. And that day, 909 would die, one-third of whom were infants and minors. It was a horrific event. It remains the largest, is there a ringing or is that just me? A little ringing, okay. Just wasn't sure it was my own ears. But yeah, highlighting the horrificness of the event. I mean, you've got the largest loss of civilian life in America in modern history. It was only surpassed by 9-11 in 2001. So if you've ever heard that expression, drinking the Kool-Aid, you know, it comes tragically from this event. And it's now referred to as, is an expression of those who sort of blindly hold to the dangerous beliefs of others. All right, why do I open with this grisly event? I think it's because when we come to spiritual leaders, if you're a little like me, you come to them a bit jaded. You come to spiritual leaders a bit skeptical, right? We often see them as, as charlatans and, and quacks who, who prey on weak and needy people, as Jim Jones did. Now, in their most sinister forms, they may be like him, but we recognize not all are like Jim Jones. You know, some won't prey on lives so much. Maybe they prey on the pocketbooks. We think of prosperity teachers like Kenneth Copeland or presidential advisor Paula White, right? Those are willing to fund their own ministries with the hard-earned dollars of others and promise prosperity if you do so. You know, I wonder even this morning if you come in with a little skeptical view of pastors, even of pastors, you know, really in it for themselves. Pastors are, are there to grow their kingdoms. It's, it's why they write books, and it's why they build big buildings and, and try to promote their ministries bigger and better, right? It's all about brand recognition, all about promoting their name. 
I wonder maybe even this morning, if that's how you view Jesus. You know, you've come in and, and you wouldn't say Jesus is like Jim Jones, of course, but, you know, maybe not even so shallow and self-centered as some of the prosperity preachers out there. But nonetheless, Jesus, even himself, a little deluded, a little dangerous. I mean, after all, Jesus did say that he alone had exclusive access to the Father. He alone demanded exclusive loyalty of anyone who would follow him. Right, it was Jesus who said, whoever loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And when, we, when Jesus' own family heard this stuff back in Mark 5, remember they tried to put him in restraints, commit him to a psych ward. And if someone stood up and said much of the same thing today, we probably wouldn't view that person much different. Wouldn't we do the same, be deeply concerned over someone who brought about such teaching? So how do we understand Jesus? Is he merely sort of a a deluded megalomaniac out about his own name, his own reputation? You know, a a charlatan trying to to connive and and convince some some simple-minded folk. I wonder if that's how you view Jesus. Because if you do, if you're skeptical at all, I think our text this morning is going to help. Let me encourage you to turn there. Mark chapter 6. Let me encourage you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. If you want to use one of the Bibles we provide in the seat back before you, you can find it on page 841, page 841. And if you're new to the Bible, just know that big bold number is the chapter number, and the little superscript numbers, those are the verse numbers. So when I reference chapter number, it's 6, and the verse numbers, again, I think you can follow along. Now, we're going to be in verses 30 to 44, but if you're just joining us, sort of jumping in at this point in Mark 6, we've got, at this point in the storyline, a, a young Jewish upstart named Jesus, and this guy's made quite a splash within Israel, right? His teachings, his healings are really unparalleled, and it has all of Israel abuzz. And they all seem to agree that he's a remarkable teacher. He's got great gifts. What they can't quite agree on is who he is, right? Who is Jesus? What's What's the identity behind this guy? Notice last week, some thought he was Elijah. Others, like the local ruler Herod, thought he was John the Baptist who had been resurrected from the dead. We saw back in Mark 3 that the religious leaders had called together a commission. You know, it's like we've done with Robert Mueller and his commission in Washington, D.C. They got their own commission, and that commission has come forward and said, yeah, Jesus is possessed by Satan. You know, that was their opinion of him. That's how they understood his ministry. And so we come to our text this morning, and this question that lingered last week, that really opened the text, it's still lingering. Who is Jesus? And it lingers on the minds and mouths of all those who who are observing him. So with that in mind, we pick up the story, Matthew 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned, and they told him, Jesus, all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went to shore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away 
to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Well, friends, we've just landed on one of, what is one of the sort of best known stories in all the Bible. It's the only miracle, in fact, recorded in all four of the Gospels. And I think it speaks to its, its, its significance and its primacy, its great popularity. And one of the challenges is, you know, we, we say things like, we're dying of hunger when we go four hours without a meal. And yet, Jesus and the culture in which he's writing and, and speaking here, these events are happening to a people for whom, like, starvation and dying of hunger was, was a real challenge. It was a real problem. They wouldn't know feasts. They wouldn't know banquets. They weren't accustomed to walking away from every meal full and satisfied. I think it's one of the reasons why it's recorded in all four Gospels as it is. You know, I vaguely remember hearing the story when I, when I was a child in my own Unitarian church. And frankly, I rarely, if ever, went to that church. And we never really talked a whole lot about the Bible. And I didn't care much about the Bible. But in John's account, which I was hearing it from, there's this mention of a boy, a young boy. And he was the one who brought the five loaves and the two fishes to the disciples. And being a young boy myself, I got a little interested. Okay, what does this young boy have to do with the story? And, and the message of the, of the pastor was that this magnanimous young little boy, willing to sort of open up his lunch pail, right, and share his meal. Well, that so moved the disciples, and it so moved the crowds that they sort of grabbed their bagged lunches and they looked inside to see what they had and and so they themselves went and voila like everyone is eating everyone has food look at the power of one little boy look how he can change the world that's the message I heard which was a little frustrating because my mom made my lunches yeah I was one of those kids mom made my lunch I know you can give me a hard time about it later and she'd leave these little treats at the bottom I didn't really want to share my lunch I didn't want to share with other people I wanted to eat my lunch I wanted to keep my lunch all right, well, others argue the point of the text, what are we to walk away from? Famine relief. All right, we ought to fight against starvation and poverty. So if you, knew, if you know the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, that's his, that's his point of this passage. Now listen, I think sharing lunch pails, which I didn't want to do as a boy, I think that's a good thing to do. I think fighting against starvation and famine, those are great things to do. I don't think that's the point of this text, though. You know, it's not by accident that Mark follows Herod's banquet from last week with another banquet of sorts here in these Galilean hills. He's presenting us, I think, with two drastically different kings. You got Herod from last week, and we have Jesus this morning. And he's presenting us 
with their ministries and how they really preside over two very different kinds of banquets, which reflect distinctly different rules. So one rules Herod in private seclusion and in great opulence, the other Jesus out in public and on the desolate hillsides. One welcomes, right, only the top brass, right, the who's who is society, whereas here is Jesus welcoming all manner of society in this passage. We've got one who leers at women, women as, as objects to be possessed and had, and yet you have Jesus who sees them as persons who ought to be instructed. You've got one who will silence the prophetic word Literally, like with a sword, he will silence the word, John the Baptist, whereas the other one will herald and preach that word. Right? One kills in order to protect himself, whereas the other will have himself killed in order to protect others. Right? Mark is setting up this contrast because he, if we're listening carefully, if we're looking at the context, he wants us to know something about who this Jesus is. You know, that's what the previous passage, that's the question raised. Who is Jesus? But then we pause and we consider the fate of John. But now this question is answered. Who is Jesus? He's the great shepherd who is both compassionate and capable to meet the needs of his sheep. Right, if you're looking sort of for one-sentence summary, I think that's it. I think Mark is helping us answer this question, who is Jesus? He's helping us see that Jesus is the great shepherd who is both compassionate and capable to meet the needs of a sheep. So what I want us to do in our remaining time is just dig a little bit deeper into that summary as we dive into the text. All right, so first thing I want us to see is that the simple truth that Jesus is the great shepherd. That's our first point. Jesus is the great shepherd. Now, some of you hear that word shepherd. You think manual labor. You know, maybe you've seen Goodwill Hunting and Matt Damon plays Will, and, and he speaks of shepherding like that. He sort of jokes about it. He says he's going to become you know, a shepherd, and he's going to move up to Nashua and have some sheep and a flock, and he sort of mocks this whole shepherding idea, and maybe that's how you think of shepherding, but if you know your Old Testament, you know that's actually not how shepherds were understood. Shepherds were leaders. The shepherds were the leaders of God's people. You have Moses. He was a shepherd before he became a leader who would lead the people out and deliver them from Egypt. You think of Joshua, the shepherd of God's people as he led them into the promised land. Think of David, who became the great shepherd king. Right? Shepherds are leaders, great prominence and power. And yet as you go through the Old Testament, if you know the storyline, God's shepherds, they fatten themselves. They don't feed the sheep. There's a great indictment in Exodus, or rather, Ezekiel 34, rather, Ezekiel 34, where God says to the leaders, shepherds, you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep, you don't feed the people. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Right? Herod is illustration A of that kind of shepherd, that kind of a leader. But then Ezekiel 34 goes on to promise another shepherd, one from David's line. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, Ezekiel 34, 23. 
Mark's helping us see that promise, that great promise, is being fulfilled right before our very eyes. In many respects, the whole verse turns, or the whole chapter rather, the section I should say, turns on verse 34. Right, when Jesus sees the great crowd that's gathered, and he has what? He has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd, verse 34. And recognize, if you just put yourself in the situation, they probably looked the part. You know, you've got the, the bedraggled masses. They're sort of scattered across the hillside. They've got their dirty white clothes set against the backdrop of that tall green grass. Jesus on the boat looking at them, they probably look like sheep without a shepherd, lost. I mean, they're in the middle of nowhere, a, a desolate place. And what has he done? Well, he's led them to the green grass. I don't know if you noticed that little detail in verse 39. These are the things we can run right over. Verse 39, the green grass. I think these little details, for one thing, they help us, well, they say remind us that what we're getting here is eyewitness testimony. I think it's reflecting one Peter in particular, sharing this story to Mark, and Peter remembers being there. He remembers that day because of what's about to happen. And he remembers, yeah, the grass was green. It was about Passover time. We get that detail recorded for us. But I think the detail is there not only, though, because Peter remembers it, but what was God's promised shepherd to do in Psalm 23? He was to make his people lie down in green pastures. What does Jesus have them do? He commands them. He makes them to literally recline. It says sit down, but it means literally recline, to sort of lie down as if at a banquet in green pastures. It's Mark's way again. If we've got ears and if we're listening and paying attention, Jesus is this great shepherd. He's the promised Davidic Messiah to come. Did you notice that word desolate repeated three times, verse 31, 32, 35, right? We're told Jesus and the disciples are in this desolate place, right? It's remote. But that word also just means wilderness, a wilderness place. It's an allusion back to the days of Moses, right? When Israel was wandering in the desolate wilderness, when Israel was suffering from hunger, and what did Moses do? He organized the people into groups. What does Jesus do in verse 40? He organizes this crowd into smaller groups. Now, that detail is not there as like our proof text for small groups. That's, that's not why we have details like that. No, it's to connect Jesus with the great shepherd Moses. And just as the Lord miraculously fed his people manna in the wilderness, as Catherine Brill read to us earlier, so Jesus feeds his people, sort of bread there in the wilderness. He is the great shepherd, whereas Herod fed his own lusts, right? His greed, Jesus, here feeds the people. Now, we think of sheep often as harmless, right, innocent creatures, right, even, even helpful, like all their, sort of all their wool, right? Who doesn't appreciate quality wool? I know it's warm, but, you know, it's getting cold, and we like wool. It's kind of that wonder fabric, you know? It's warm, it insulates, it doesn't chafe, and it's odorless and all the rest. Like, wool's great, but beyond that, sheep, well, they're not exactly strong and independent creatures, right? They're not fierce. They're not sort of predators and, and proud hunters. That's not what sheep are. You know, they're rather pitiful in many ways. And so when the Bible compares us to sheep without a shepherd, it's actually not paying us a compliment. And I know they give us wool, but I mean, it's not really a compliment. Right? You can say they're dumb, they're directionless and defenseless. That's pretty much what sheep are. 
Their heads are constantly in the grass. They quickly become lost. They wander into danger, and then they become dinner, and it's all over. Right? Like sheep, we too, we often live our lives. This is part of what Ryan was actually praying in the, in the prayer confession. We live our lives with our heads down. Right? We follow our own appetites. We wander off until we find ourselves in trouble. Right? We get ourselves into a world of hurt. Friends, that's why sheep need shepherds. We all need shepherds. It's why we need Christ, the great shepherd of his sheep. But at the same time, until we're finally with Christ, Christ has given us Ephesians 4, shepherds to pastor the sheep. They're called pastors. So I just wonder if you're, if you're a Christian this morning, but you're not a member of UBC, who is your shepherd? I wonder how you would answer that question. Who is your shepherd? The Bible says we're all to have shepherds that we are to submit to, Hebrews 13, 17, for our care, for our protection, for our good. But I wonder what shepherds do you submit to? Would those shepherds even know your name? And of course, shepherds, what are they? They're to know their sheep. They're to be accountable to the sheep, all right, and accountable for the sheep. Really, they, they pursue them when they wander off, the story of Jesus, like pursuing the one and leaving the 99 to, to gather that lost sheep. I say this in part because, friends, this is why things like church membership matter, right? It clarifies who are the shepherds that are cared for the sheep and who are the sheep that are to be cared for by the shepherds. It's why we have things like a membership directory. It's why we give it to you. We put pictures in there so you can know who's a part of this flock and fold. It's why we publish that absent and non-attending members list in the back. It's not because we're trying to shame anyone, but it's because, hey, these sheep seem to have wandered off. We're not quite sure where they are. We don't know how they're doing. And an unloving shepherd says, ah, I hope they make it. Right? But true shepherds should be concerned about them, should be praying about them, should be encouraging the other sheep to be concerned about those sheep who have wandered off. Right? Caring for them. That's the kind of ministry we're supposed to have with one another. That's what we should be doing as your own pastors and elders. And if we didn't, we really wouldn't be shepherding like Jesus. He is the great shepherd. But what kind of shepherd is Jesus? What kind of shepherd is he? Well, that gets us to sort of the second half of that summary statement, right? He's compassionate and capable of meeting the needs of his sheep. And that's just what I want to spend the sort of second half of this time thinking about. How he's compassionate and capable to meet the needs of his sheep. I know that's kind of clunky. It's kind of workmanlike. You know, sometimes outlines go like that. Like the football game yesterday, you know, they got the win, but it was a little workmanlike, you know, a little uncertain. Well, it's true. It's good. We're going to work with it, okay? He is gloriously compassionate, and he meets the needs of his sheep. That's what we get to think about. So imagine then Jesus with the disciples. They're coming around sort of the point They're going to come in and and sort of dock their boat, so to speak, pull it up on shore. But instead of this solitude that they desperately sought, instead they're met with the scrambling masses. And then what does Jesus do? Right? He doesn't sort of fake them out and tack back out to sea. You know, he doesn't say, hey, you know what? This is really sort of members only time. This is just us, right? We're going to cordon off this area. You guys go away, sort of make your hike back to your own homes. No, he doesn't do that. Instead of, of, of encountering exasperation, we don't read that he's irritated, right? Jesus, what does he have? He has compassion. He has compassion. Verse 34, if that's sort of the door to the understanding of the text, 
That word compassion, that's the hinge on which the whole text turns. It's Jesus' own compassion. And friends, if you don't know Jesus, this is what makes him different. This is what makes Jesus different. Because the world is not a particularly compassionate place. It's often cruel. It can be highly competitive. You know, a sort of dog-eat-dog kind of world. I don't know where that expression comes from, but you know what I mean when I say it. So I'll never forget my own years at college. You know, I'd, I was an econ major working through econ problem sets, and, and uh, you know, there was a lot of smarter kids there than me. And so I'd often get stuck. And I remember looking at my roommate and saying, hey, how did you kind of work through this one? And I kind of got a non-answer. I'm like, well, no, like, really, I'm kind of stuck. Like, can you help me think through this question? I got another non-answer. Well, after two or three weeks of that, I realized, yeah, you know what? Everything's graded on a curve. So the, it's not really the grade you get. It's all, re- it's all relative to how you do to the person sort of in the other chair. So my own roommate didn't really want to help me because if he helps me, that actually could hurt him. And this is the world I lived in. I'm like, this is a great place. I want to stay here. You know, but it's everyone looking out for numero uno. The, the world can feel like that, kind of a toxic place. But I want you to see Jesus is actually not like that. Right? He's not like that. In Mark, this word compassion is used only of Jesus. It's not used of anybody else. It's unique to him because it's unique to his father. So if you read through the Old Testament, we read scores of times, like in Psalm 86:15, that the Lord is compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. And yet that same college, I would actually have this compassion, I think, modeled wonderfully for me, powerfully. You know, because I got there and I couldn't write to save my life. And I knew I was a terrible writer. And I knew I'd need to improve. So I signed up for the intensive writing course. And I showed up that first day and realized, oh no, there's seven of us and one professor. And he's a professional author. And he'd take this train down from New York. He'd wear these black pants and sort of a disheveled white shirt, and he had a peppered beard and glasses, and just a plume of smoke like followed him. He just, he was like a writer, right? (laughs) And we had to write a paper each week off various books we were reading, and then to my horror, that first week he says, I'm going to pick a paper at random, I'm going to read it out loud next week, and we're going to critique it. I'm thinking, oh boy. So I write my first paper, it's that second week, he reads that first paper, And now I'm really horrified because this is like a piece that could be in the New Yorker. And I know my piece that I turned in was nothing like that. But then it got worse because at the end of the class, he called me in and he said, hey, Mr. Wheeler, can we chat? And I said, sure. And he sat me down and he said, listen. And he gives me the paper. He said, I didn't put a grade on it. And I knew in that moment exactly what that meant. (laughs) That's because I failed. (laughs) There's no grade on it. He said, it's clear you've got some fine thoughts, but you have the foggiest idea how to write. Here's a book called The Confident Writer. You're going to have to sort of pick it up and figure out how to survive in this class. But he said it lovingly. And I sensed that, and I kind of knew that. And so that's what I tried to do. And I had this one paper later in the semester that was kind of my breakthrough paper. And in his kindness, that's the paper he chose to read. It was still an embarrassment compared to the others, but it wasn't as bad as it could have been. And all the while, you know, he didn't say your writing is so bad, you just need to drop this class. He didn't say, you know, you come in every week after class, and I'm kind of tired of having these same conversations. I gave you that book, go read it, just don't bother me. He didn't act like that. He didn't try to humiliate me, but in that semester, he was showing compassion to me. You know, a petrified student who felt like he never belonged, 
He gave me one of the greatest gifts of my college career. And friend, that's what Jesus is like. He doesn't look at us and say, like, you're a pathetic excuse for a human. Do you realize that? A pathetic excuse, that's not what he says. He doesn't say you're a worthless worm. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm done with you. I was actually done with you a long time ago. I've just been putting up with you, and and I'm now tired of that. Right, your incessant demands and, and your failures and badgering. No, he takes pity. He shows compassion upon these people. Right, we can't tire Jesus. We can't wear him out. Is he tough on sin? He is absolutely tough on sin. But even more than that, he is tender in his compassion for those who seek forgiveness in him, who see their need for him. That toughness is overwhelmed by that tenderness. That's why Puritan Richard Sibbs would would famously say, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. He's compassionate, even in the moments of our greatest failure. Those moments, you know, when you, like, despise even yourself. We all get to those times. We can turn to him in contrition, and we can know that he will not despise us. He will not reject us. It's not in his nature because he's a compassionate God. Now, our compassion has its limits. It does. I mean, take the disciples. So they're looking forward to this personal retreat with Jesus. That's how the section opens up. And yet, they've got their plans hijacked right at the get-go. Right? They arrive there in this desolate place, and instead of leaving the masses, they're all waiting for them. It's like a mom trying to get away from her kids, and she shows up at this wonderful little cabin in the woods, and the three of them are screaming, right? It's just like, this is the disciples' experience. And this is what they're wrestling with. And now it's near the end of the day. And now the sun is setting and their tumblies are, tummies I should say are rumbling. You know, they're getting hungry, right? The disciples are starting to grumble. They're starting to grumble. They finally come to Jesus in verse 35. They say it's late. And it's late. In case you hadn't noticed, sun's starting to set. And in case you hadn't noticed, we're in a desolate place. Like, we're in the middle of nowhere. And if you hadn't noticed, there are a lot of people, and there is no food. Remember, Jesus, none of these people are supposed to be here. So what do they say? Send them away. Send them away. We can feel the sort of grumbling of the disciples, like Israel grumbled in her own wilderness. But Jesus doesn't send them away, does he? No, instead, verse 37, he responds rather sharply to the disciples, and he said, you give them something to eat. Now, at this point, we got to feel a little for the disciples, don't we? I mean, Jesus, how is this our problem? Right? You welcomed them. You've kept them here for hours. We came here to rest. We didn't come to open a restaurant for these people. Like, how has this become our problem? And what are we supposed to feed them with? Like, we didn't take a food truck with us. There's no Sam's Club. Like, we don't have a, we can't afford the grocery bill. I mean, 200 denarii, that's, a denarii is a day's labor, like a day's wage. So 200 days of wages. We don't have that kind of cash. Remember, you sent us out without money bags? Remember the last chapter you did that? Or actually, the beginning of this chapter? Okay, so how do we understand what's happening? You begin to get the sense Jesus has perhaps orchestrated all these events. Like, he's intentionally brought them to this point, the desolate place. The remote location, three times we're told again. The late hour of the day, we're reminded twice of that. The great crowds, all to display how Jesus is compassionate and able to meet the needs of a sheep. 
And I think we see it in three distinct ways, right? First, he feeds them physically. Like he, he, that's the clear and obvious thing, right? Jesus feeds them physically, right? Instead of sending the crowds away, what does he do? He instead gathers them together. He then takes the, the five loaves. He takes the two fish. He divides it up. He delivers it to the disciples. And then we simply read in verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. How did that happen? Did the bread just like appear in Jesus' hands? The Bible doesn't get into the details. It doesn't, doesn't talk about those details. You know, we're not told. We're just told that everyone's kind of fat and happy at the end. 5,000 men, not including women and children. Right, so this, like, give us our day, give us this day our daily bread. Like, a new meaning to that prayer. I mean, look what happens. But of course, in multiplying the loaves and fishes, Jesus does in this moment, at one level, what he does every single day. Right? The corn in the fields, the fish in the sea, hogs in the pen, whatever, you know, eggs in the hen house. Like, he regular provides food for us. He meets our needs. And so abundant was the provision we read that there are 12 baskets full of bread and fish left over. And later in Mark 8, when Jesus reflects on this miracle, he actually draws particular attention to this, to, to all the leftovers. And I think the point is not simply that 5,000 were fed, but look at what was left even. I think it's to highlight the abundance of God's grace, his ability to more than meet our need. Right? God's not a tight-fisted kind of God. He's not a stingy kind of guy. He meets the needs of his people. I remember the first time I went to Fogo de Chao, if, that's, if you know that restaurant. I went once and only once. And the thing I remember was that they just kept serving me plates of food. Didn't matter, I told them I was done. I just kept getting plates of food. I was stuffed more than I wanted to be stuffed. It's, this is kind of the experience I think they're having. Like they all ate and were satisfied so much so they couldn't eat anymore and they couldn't perhaps keep anymore and there's still some left over, right? God's like that. He's abundantly gracious, right? In him we have a well that never runs dry. It's always overflowing with grace and overabundance, but it's not just the physical feeding that he does for the people. Many stop here. But notice also, notice how he instructs them spiritually. That's another way he shows himself compassionate and capable to meet their need. He instructs them spiritually. Notice that first, just even in that command to rest. That's how the scene opens, right? The disciples return from their mission trip. They're telling stories of sort of triumph and trials and they're exhausted and tired and Jesus says okay I can see it come we're going to get away and rest a while and come and rest are actually imperatives they're commands he's commanding them to rest right come away to the Ozarks like we're going to head out to the buffalo we're just going to get a little R&R time right Jesus understands we all need rest he expects there will be seasons when we spend ourselves fully spend ourselves we feel beyond our own capacity and he's saying those seasons ought to be followed by some recovery. For a while, that's what it says. You know, not forever, you know, not probably for years. Not a retirement in that sense, but, you know, at least for hours, if not days. And he's not saying this rest is sort of, is me time. And this can be a risk sometimes, especially when we're doing the work of the Lord. You know, we're done with that. We're like, okay, it's me time. Like, I get to sit down. I'm going to catch up on SportsCenter or Twitter feed or whatever it might be. That's not the kind of rest he's talking about. He's commanding us to rest in him, to come and find our rest in him. 
And the greater the demands, the greater the need to rest and to be alone with Jesus. Right? Not in other things. Not in sex. Not in video games. Not in mindless entertainment. Not in weed or alcohol or any other substance that would dull the mind and our senses. No, we're talking disciplined rest. Something many of us are not particularly good at because our idea of rest is sitting down and scrolling through Instagram or something, which makes us more like ADD than, than actual rest. Concentrated time in the Word, right? time reading, time reflecting, perhaps time journaling. Right? We put down our phones and we pick up the Word. We take our eyes off social media. We lift our eyes to the Lord. We focus upon Him. I mean, that's what a morning devotion does. It's sort of that planned disciplined rest but it's also a good idea after heavy seasons you might have to plan this time go beyond sort of a devotional you know if you're a spouse and you know that your season and the family's life has been crazy you may need to look at your spouse and and plan such a thing plan time for them to get away maybe plan time for you to get away but one of the things we see even here and you'll know this in your own life is so often even those plans best laid are hijacked right you get a text last minute, a kid is sick, a car is broken down, a friend has a need, and you had planned rest, and the Lord seems to take it. He takes it from you. Well, friends, when that happens, those best laid plans go down the drain. No, God has a purpose in that. He's got a purpose in that. He's teaching you something. He's teaching in part what it looks like to minister out of weakness, to minister out of need, how to rely upon him and not merely yourself for strength. You know, if he's determined to lead you down a harder path in that day, know that he will sustain you as you walk. He will sustain you and he will fill you even in ways you would never expect and ways you couldn't anticipate. And you'll come to know God, you'll come to know his compassion in a way that you would never know had you not walked that path. You know, the disciples have never would have known the compassion of Jesus that they would need themselves later on in their ministries had Jesus not led them into this day, which would end up being a hard day for them. But notice also how he feeds them. With nobody to care for the people, to provide for them, to protect them, what does Jesus do? He teaches them. Did you catch that? He teaches them. He instructs them spiritually. We read that right there. He began to teach them many things, the end of verse 34. And over and over again in Mark, this has been the constant refrain, Jesus gathers the people in order to instruct them. Right? It's not about famine relief, it's not about physical hunger, it's about addressing a deeper spiritual starvation. And friends, that's what faithful shepherds do. It's what they do. They teach the word after the great shepherd himself. What did Paul exhort Timothy to do? Right When he was pastoring in Ephesus. It is not like, Go study drama, not what he said, like hip dress, right, whatever, fine. But that's not what he said. He said what? He said, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season to correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Right? That's what you've set me aside to do. I might have ministered to the sick, you know, visit a hospital, of course. Help the weak, of course. But I also need to block off a good bit of my time so I can come and give you the word. So I have something for you to feed on on Sunday morning. But it's not just what pastors to do. I want you to see from this text, it's what actually all Christians are supposed to do. They're supposed to do this very thing. Did you wonder why Jesus was so sharp in verse 37 with the disciples? So sharp with them? 
you emphatically, you give them something to eat? I mean, Jesus is a little harsh. Like, we don't have food. Again, remember, you've, you've been ministering to them. You've, you've, you've helped us to this point. But I think that actually is the very point. They don't have the ability to minister to them. Right? We are never in and of ourselves equipped to meet the spiritual needs of others. We don't have the resources. We don't have the strength to do that kind of ministry. And so sometimes we think, you know, I don't have it, so maybe I don't need to disciple another Christian. I've never been discipled. Maybe I'm a younger Christian. I've never seen these things modeled. I'll leave that for sort of other super Christians to do. And like the disciples, we become focused on what? On what we don't have. But notice, that's not Jesus' focus. Jesus doesn't focus on what they don't have. He rather intends them to focus on what they do have, on the five loaves and the two fish. And he's making a spiritual point. He's making a spiritual point. Is that not enough for God to use? Is that enough, not enough for me to use? Can I not use this little bit? Have you not seen me work thus far? Do you not recognize that, of course, I can use whatever little you have to accomplish all the great things I intend to? It was never about what you had or your gifts. It's about what I do in and through you. And that's the message he's trying to send. He's screaming at them, of course, of course, I'm capable to multiply what you lack, and I can do with it as I please. You know, in D.C., I had some friends, and they were young, newly married, uh, a lot of college debt. Uh, he actually was graduated from the U of A, was not a believer when he was here, became a believer later, but he, um, he was in the city, and they wanted to be faithful. They wanted to disciple people. They wanted to pour the word into people as they'd had it poured into them, but they had a really small apartment, and they even had a smaller hospitality budget. But one of the things that struck me and I was thinking about them as of this text, is they didn't actually focus on what they didn't have. You know, they didn't have a swank dining room. They didn't have a sick spread they could offer to folks when they came over on Sunday after church. But they didn't let that dissuade them. Instead, they said, come on over. We're going to sit on our couch, and we can give you PB&J. And that's what they did. That's all they could afford. They just fed the people with PB&J, right? Simple loaves and fishes. And yet, hospitality as they understood it's never about sort of the size of the spread right it's the size of the heart it's the attention to the word and that's what they gave themselves to and their ministry was tremendously fruitful tremendously fruitful and friends that's what disciples do that's what Jesus wants his own disciples to understand is they give Jesus what little they possess and they trust Jesus to do the rest with it to do with it as he will and that's no different for you this morning than with the disciples. So yes, he instructs them spiritually, but a third and final thing of how he, how he shows compassion and, and care for the people. I want you to notice he secures them eternally. Yeah, he feeds them physically. Yes, he instructs them spiritually. He secures them eternally. This is how we're going to close. If you look down to verses 39 to 41, you know, it's interesting. Why does Mark spend so much time speaking of the preparation of the meal? All the time about the preparation of the meal, but not about the multiplication of it. Doesn't talk much about that. Ever wonder why? I mean, if you look down there, we notice that the disciples are sitting. They're literally reclining. Again, as if invited to a banquet table. And there we have Jesus at the head. Then he's taking bread. And he's holding it. And he's blessing it. And he's breaking it, and he's giving it to the disciples to eat. 
that sound familiar at all? Sound at all like the Last Supper? When Jesus is there again with the disciples, taking bread, blessing it, breaking it, giving it to them. Right, he's presiding over a feast. And, and this one here is meant to point us to that feast. Only at that feast he's going to reveal that this bread being broken is actually going to be his body broken for them. For them. They are on the cross. Jesus would have his body broken. Though he had committed no crime, though he was guilty of no sin, there on the cross Jesus became sin for us. So that if we repented of our sins and would run to him in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Right? He takes our filth and his righteousness becomes ours. That sweet exchange, his for ours, he takes our sin. And unlike Herod in Jesus' day, right? unlike Herod in Jesus' day, unlike even Jim Jones as we open, thinking about more of our modern day, you know, those were examples of, of shepherds who sort of took the lives of the sheep. But Jesus is even helping them understand now that he's the one who's going to be the good shepherd who's going to lay his life down for sheep. He's going to lay it down for them. By his death, he would secure the lives of his children eternally. Of course, we think of that banquet. And no doubt later on in their ministry, disciples, as they reflected on that last supper, they remembered the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. And yet, even those banquets point us to a future banquet, a final banquet, right? Revelation 19, when we're united around our king without pain, without sorrow, without debilitating effects of age and loss, we gather around that table and there at last, right? There won't be mere loaves and fishes, but there is that kind of sick bread that is fit for a king because at the head will be our king, our resurrected king, and he will be there, and we will behold him in all this resurrected glory. And our souls will be forever satisfied. Oh, friend, I hope you begin to have a clear picture of who this Jesus is. The great shepherd who is compassionate and capable to feed his sheep yeah, he feeds them physically, instructs them spiritually. He secures them by his death eternally. Do you know this Jesus this morning? Do you know him? I mean, can you imagine a better savior than this shepherd? Oh, let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise. And we give you praise for your word. Oh, Lord, we look at it and we see things at the surface and then as we dig in, as we reflect upon your word, Lord, from Genesis to Revelation and we see how you're teaching us so much more about your character and about your goodness and about your glory and about how you are worthy. Oh, we confess your worthiness. We pray this to you in Jesus' name, our resurrected King. Amen.